Hello, it's Richard, the host of Zero to Something podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. On the show, I am lucky enough to interview Sarah Fryer, who wrote the book No Filter, which is all about Instagram's rise. It is a super interesting story from a couple of perspectives. It's a really interesting business story, a tiny company that gets bought for a billion dollars, the growth of that and all that stuff. It's also really interesting on the tensions between Instagram and Facebook, and particularly the founders, Kevin Systrom of Instagram and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and also kind of how Instagram got going. It's really interesting to talk about the celebrity angle. You kind of think these days, oh, celebrities are all over social media. It's kind of a natural phenomenon. No, Instagram worked super, super, super hard to get the first celebrities using the platform. And I talk about all of that with Sarah and a little bit more. So really hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Also follow me on Twitter. I'm at underscore R Howard and definitely buy the book. No filter. The link is in the show notes. On to the episode. said that understanding human motivation, understanding the the thought processes that got us to the world we live in today helps me explain it to others. Once I learned that journalism was the kind of career that was possible, combining writing and talking to people, I just thought, of course, that's that's (laughs) me. That's what I want to do. Are your are your parents like of that world or is it completely separate from kind of what you grew up with? You know, I do credit my parents a little bit for my dive into journalism because my parents are are so different in how they think. My dad is extremely logical thinking, you know, this is a overgeneralization, but you know, he's a he's a math guy, like he thinks of things in terms of of efficiency and and return on investment. And my mom is is more about human emotion and thinks of things in terms of of you know what what is what is fair and just and and so they have a lot of interesting discussions when I was growing up not not like angry discussions but just debate yeah. about policy about everything and and I as the child had to kind of sort through that and think okay well what's the truth here though like like I see their I see their perspectives, but what is the what is actually happening? Like what do I actually know? Yeah. And maybe that that's basically what a journalism journalist does. Okay. And then was that something that I guess kind of throughout school you were maybe you know you're like always writing or was it something that kind of appealed to you a little bit later on? I was always writing. When I was a kid, I would yeah write plays with my cousin Claire. We would cast all of our cousins, our littler cousins in various parts and did that every time our families got together. I would write little stories. I thought maybe I would be a, a novelist or something, but but didn't really realize that journalism was even a profession until I got into high school. Okay, awesome. And then so, you know, you, you decided that Journalism is what I want to do. And I'm going to come back. I've got a question about your, your university days in, in journalism. And you've written this book, No Filter, which is the, this is the story of, of the kind of the rise of Instagram. So, of, you know, you're interested in the stories, you're interested in writing. Of all of these stories of startups rising, what was it about the Instagram story in particular that kind of drew you in? Because it was untold. The Instagram story is a story of a, a product that has completely transformed our society, our culture, our our motivations for, you know, 
our values, what we want, how, how we, who we aspire to be. And that was something when you ask, if you were to ask me in 2018, before the, before I started this project, why did they build it the way that they did? How did they make these decisions? We didn't have those answers. And so I knew that there was a lot of fertile ground with this product in particular. When I started on the book, they had just reached a billion users around the world. And yet the names of the founders were not household names. The decisions they made were were unclear to people. It was kind of just products we used a lot with that shaped our our decisions, but we weren't really thinking about why or how or or how we could use it in a more healthy way. Yeah. And having, having cause you did a little bit of research, obviously you'd written about Instagram uh, for Bloomberg and then having done all the, the research for the book and written the book, has it changed the way that you use Instagram? Well, it certainly made me think about Instagram now as a tool for Facebook. Okay. Right? I think that, that, that the transformation of the product from something that the founders intended into part of this growth machine, really. Like Facebook, I mean, so many people have this opinion that Facebook is not not very innovative. Like what have they really built? Like this idea for a social network came long before them, the, all of these products they copy and borrow. The thing that Facebook innovated is how to grow really fast, yeah. reaching as many people as possible, becoming more important in their lives, they are incredibly skilled and innovative at doing that. And that's what they're using Instagram for now. So when you look at Instagram today, when I when I see the, the constant notifications, the recommendations that personalize the product for you, throw you deeper into rabbit holes that you've started to go down, that is the Facebookization of this product. And, and you can see it so plainly after doing all these interviews that I did, like I can see exactly what's happening in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to before. Yeah. And it's interesting because Facebook, and you you, you mentioned it in the book, you know, they, they acquired Instagram, obviously, later on, they acquired WhatsApp, and they let them be, you know, pretty independent. But then I think it was 2018, when they started to say, you know, it was WhatsApp from Facebook and Instagram from Facebook. So one of the things that I wondered is, are the people that work at, at Facebook, the people that you, you've spoken to, or that you know of, are they, I don't know if there's a better term than kind of like self aware of how the world perceives the Facebook product specifically and Facebook as a company beyond the like the election stuff, the, you know, the pumping for growth and the trying to drive engagement, trying to drive clicks and, and you know, spamming people with notifications. Are they like aware of the wider per- perception? I think that they there's two different ways of looking at it. If you're a Facebook employee, you could look at what people say they want and what they say they feel about Facebook. Or you could look at the data. And if you are an employee at Facebook, you are almost certainly looking at the data. You're seeing those numbers go up. And I think that that is the fundamental flaw of the company. They believe that the more people that use a product, the more time they spend on it, the more successful it is, the more people love it, which is not exactly true, right? We, We may spend unhealthy amounts of time on Facebook. We may, you know, dive into to communities on Instagram that that teach us the wrong way to to address coronavirus. Like there there are so many ways that the data doesn't tell the full story. But I think if you are a Facebook employee, the data is so fundamental to your experience at the company 
it's how your bonus is determined. It's how yeah. your promotions are determined. Then, you know, if your family is saying, I think Facebook's a little bit evil. I think I'm scared of their ha- them having my data. I think I'm, I think I, I don't really believe in the product, but then you're looking at, at how they spend their time and they're on Facebook. You think, well, what do they know? Yeah. I, I guess it's, it's the self-awareness of the people at Facebook and also the consumer's almost lack of self-awareness, right? Facebook is Facebook knows what we're doing and why we're doing it, or maybe not why we're doing it, but... But are we doing it because we want to or are we doing it because it's the only option, really? that it, It's a network of more than 3 billion people right now. So if you want to get in touch with someone, if you want to keep up with somebody, it kind of have one option. Yeah. No, it's, really, it's, it's interesting. So I, I am on the podcast, I spoke to maybe a month or so ago, a guy called Rory Sutherland. I don't know if you, if you know him. So he's like the head of Ogilvy, which is like this oh, massive yeah. advertising organization. And he, he runs this like unit, which, which looks at kind of behavioral science. And so his, his thing is always like, look at how people behave, not how they say they're going to act. And that's how, you know, they're creating ads or creating things. And he always, he's got a great book called Alchemy. And it's always kind of thinking about how people actually work and how people actually do things rather than their idealized version of what they really think of themselves. You know, like, oh, I've never spent time on Facebook. It's, you know, spam outfit, but there you are, you know, half an hour a day or 40 minutes again. It just goes like that and you don't even notice. Okay. Become part of the structure of our world. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, I want to bring it back a little bit because one of the interests are a little bit to you because so you we talked through your kind of writing into journalism and then you went to the University of North Carolina and you worked for the, the student newspaper. I guess you became editor or, or chief of the student newspaper or, or whatever the official title. What is the official title? Editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief. I was looking at that and, you know, comparing it to newspapers, like university newspapers over here, which are very, very, very tame and, and whatever. And then I read that you, you know, you were covering a murder and an academic scandal and you sued the university for access to public records that is like like a proper meaty like journalism even though it's like a student (laughs) newspaper kind of stuff well one of the the pitfalls of local journalism is that there it's dying but the benefit the opportunity then for student journalists is that they can fill that void and if you have a campus newspaper you have a captive audience walking by the newspaper boxes every single day. And you can you can sell enough ads, at least the time that I was there. It may no longer be the case. But at the time I was there, you could you could have a very healthy, thriving newspaper in paper form every day. And so and so it it was an independent newspaper. It was it was a, a place that had, you know, about 200, 250 journalists working on it who are just students amateurs but but you get thrown into the fire and you learn very quickly i mean the the murder that i covered our student body president was murdered that happened my freshman year and i covered the consequences of that for my four years there you know there were there was a like you mentioned an academic scandal with the football team that resulted in the resignation of a lot of the athletic higher ups eventually the the chancellor left the university so I think that the the power that student journalists have, at least in that community where it's a true college town, can be can be really really incredible. And I I I think I learned strength as a journalist at in that time because when you're dealing with big companies like Facebook, they try to intimidate you, they try to mislead you, they try to obscure the truth, and and when you've already dealt with with that on a local level, you end up learning how to how to talk to people and, and how to work through it and how to stay strong on, on the path of the truth. 
And how was it being editor in chief? Because you're still a student and yet you're managing this paper. You said 250 staff, you're covering incredibly important stories, but I guess you also have to pass your classes, right? Do you know that nightmare that a lot of people have (laughs) about going into the classroom and they're handing out a test and you had no idea that there was a test that day? Oh my God, that happened to me in real life so many times. (laughs) I just, you know, it wasn't, it, it, I somehow graduated, but (laughs) my priority was the news. And if something happened when I was in class, I would leave class. Okay. And I would do my job, you know, and I would do my homework after the paper went to bed at midnight. And you do it at 2 a.m. Sometimes I get woken up at 8 a.m. with a call from the general manager saying, hey, why did the paper miss deadline by two minutes? Like, and you're just, you're just, you're just doing it. It's yeah. just, you're, you're <laughs> a spokesperson for the paper. You're a manager with little experience yourself and, and it, it, it throws you into the fire. So I'm really grateful for that because I don't think anything will ever, nothing was as hard as that until I wrote a book. Yeah, that's one of the one of the the common threads I find when I talk to people that have uh, written a book. And either it was a great thing and the it was hard, but they really enjoyed it and they can't wait to write the next one, or this is the last book they're ever going to write and they refuse to even contemplate writing another one. Where are, where are you in that camp? Oh, I I'm fully aware that the experience was was unhealthy and probably ill-advised but yeah. i am certainly hoping to write another one one day because it is it is a really really rewarding process and it, it differs from journalism in, in journalism you you have this constant conversation with your audience when you find something out you can write a scoop and and people will react to that give you follow-up tips tell you you're an idiot whatever the case may be yeah. you have this constant conversation when you're working on a book, you are gathering all of these threads, all these stories into this trap, into this tapestry that really only makes sense in your own head. And if you're trying to have debates with people about like, what is what is important? What are the themes? What is the storyline? Who are the main characters that I should focus on? What should I leave in? What should I take out? Nobody can answer those questions for you. It's yeah. all it's all you doing the thinking, trying to figure out what makes sense. And so that was that was torturous but wonderful in the end because you're you're well you're always second guessing yourself you're always thinking you know am I doing it right like is this even readable and and I remember I panicked at the very end of my book process because I realized that the only people who had read the book were were you know my husband my close friend and and my editor and the copy editor and I thought oh my goodness what if it's not ready? All these people who have read it are on my side or, or you know, part of the team. And so I sent it to my coworkers yeah. or a few of them who were willing to read it over the holidays. And finally, a couple of weeks later, I got emails back saying, this is, this is going to be great. I don't know what you're worried about. Well, you, what you need to do is you need to send it to like the person you fell out with in high school that had, like holds a grudge against you. And you're like, mm-hmm. I know you don't like me, but what do you think of this book? That would have been a good strategy. Yeah. But so what's really interesting is because, you know, I guess there's, there's there's lots of business books out there and there's like a couple of different ways you can go about it. You know, obviously you have the, I guess, the shoe dog option, which is when it's an autobiography or the mm-hmm. kind of the Walter Isaacson version, which is, you know, like a, an authorized biography. And then you have yours, which I think is probably, at least from an outsider's perspective, the most difficult to do because you have to, you must have to interview so many people gather so much information but what is the actual like process in actuality of how do you even start who do you reach out to first what like what is the how do you i I can't even get my words out how does it begin so it is it is a process where you 
you can't judge yourself in the midst of it. You just have to make steady progress every single day. And I, I leaned a lot on the advice of people who also work at Bloomberg, who've written books before me, Ashley Vance, who wrote the book on Elon Musk and Brad Stone, Brad Stone, an incredible mentor of mine who wrote Amazon, the Amazon book, The Everything Store. And, and I was like, how do I know if I'm making progress? How do I know if I'm doing enough? And I was told, basically, you want to make sure that you're reaching out to at least five people every day and that you're doing, on average, an interview a day. And the way you know that you're ready to write a book is when you've gathered 100 things. This is Brad's rule. 100 things that nobody has read in print, whether that's anecdotes, facts, scenes, moments that are new. And if you have that, then you're ready to write. That doesn't mean you're going to use all 100. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get more, but you can at least start your writing then knowing that you have what it takes to have a good nonfiction book. The challenge with this one is I wanted it to be bigger than a business book. I I didn't think, now that we understand the, the importance of tech companies in the fabric of our society and in our lives and our human developments and all of that, I I wanted to make sure that when I was writing a story about the Instagram team, that I didn't write the typical hero's journey of a business book. Like these really brilliant dudes, usually dudes, (laughs) did something, did something incredible that disrupted this market and proved all the haters wrong. And look how rich they are today. Here's how you can be successful too. (laughs) That, That is not the kind of book I wanted to write. I wanted to do something that incorporated not just the internal drama and decision-making, but also the impact on, on our culture, on our society. So I made sure to talk to, to the people inside and outside the company, but also to influencers and celebrities, to teenagers, to psychiatrists, to parents, to business owners, to people in countries outside the U.S., to people who were were fans of the product and people who hated it, and and people who competed with Instagram too. I talked to a lot of people at Snapchat and Twitter, so I wanted to build this this richer narrative of of tech and culture, which was difficult because there really yeah. really wasn't much of a blueprint for that. And I, I think you really succeeded. I, I thought it was a super fascinating account. So I like my my day job, I work in tech and, and startups. And so like I know that world pretty well. But I hadn't, you know, I hadn't heard most of these stories. And and one of the things that that really stood out for me from somebody who, you know, who lives in this world was basically Kevin and, and Mike, the the two founders, when they got bought by Facebook, they kind of screwed their employees in terms of like their expectation of riches, should I say? Yeah, when you go when you go and work for a startup, you're taking a gamble. You're taking a yeah. lower salary because you think that, well, if this gets big, if this is the one, I'm set for life. I can I can use that money to start another company. So when and when I heard that the the majority of the early Instagram employees got mere raises, yeah. It it was a little shocking considering that the founders got hundreds of millions yeah for only 13 employees it wouldn't have been that hard to make sure everyone ended up doing great i i assumed and i think everybody says oh you know you're an early employee at instagram you must be you know loaded you're an angel investor now etc etc that's that's the gamble you take when you you're early at a, a start an unproven startup right and and i think that that people who read that passage, we have a lot of divergent opinions. I think the majority of people feel the way you do, but other people also feel like, but they only work for, you know, 
three to six months on this thing. They expected to be millionaires, like grow up. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the other, the other side of it. But, but yeah, no, it, it grew, it grew that fast in that short period of time. It became a phenomenon and the people who built it were part of that. So that said, everyone who took the Facebook stock at the bottom when like basically when the Instagram deal closed, Facebook stock was near the floor of, of possible stock price. Yeah. And if you got any of that in those early days, you are set today. But yeah. a lot of the Instagram employees couldn't stand to stay there for long enough. Yeah. I, I want to go on like a little bit of a deeper dive into the book and, and kind of the Instagram story because it was really fascinating. And one of the things that um, popped up for me, it, it's so weird to read it now in 2021 and realize the all the almost like the machinations that the Instagram team had to go through to get like celebrities on the platform. And you think nowadays it's totally natural. Oh, celebrity, they're a singer, whatever, influencer, uh, actor, they want to be on social media, they want to be on Twitter, they want to be on Instagram, they want to be on on whatever. But they had to really kind of cajole them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about their kind of celebrity grasp. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of people think about the fact that Instagram had that that, you know, hand behind the scenes, moving parts, deciding who would become famous, coaching A-listers on how to use Instagram, holding their hands. But but unlike a lot of other platforms, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, where they kind of just like saw it happen and then, you know, built a team around supporting the people who, who got invested, Instagram tried to create it. And there's this, this guy, Charles Porch, who for years wanted to do that with Facebook, but was never really given the green light. And he knew exactly how to get celebrities to use Instagram. And it was by by helping them think of Instagram as a place to, to achieve whatever goal they wanted to achieve commercially or for their for their art. It was a place that you know, I talked with I talked with Chris Jenner, the, the yeah. momager of the Kardashians, who's just you know really built an incredible empire on Instagram. And she said in the beginning, a lot of A-list celebrities were telling her, "Why would I ever use a platform like Instagram? Because if I share too much of myself and the inside of my life, like I'll be less famous. I, there won't be any mystery around me anymore." And yeah. Nobody will care. It'll be too accessible. And what what Jenner realized and what the Kardashians realized is actually the more you share, the more potential you have to build this affinity with your audience and get them to cheer for whatever you want them to cheer for. And they can also tell you exactly what products they're going to buy. So so I think that once people started to see the success that could come from the major Instagram accounts, they started to, to go into it too but for a while it was considered like the cheap way to go like the the kind of kind of desperate but but instagram through a lot of events a lot of meet and greets a lot of kevin says from the ceo actually going in person to talk with fashion designers people like anna wintour even the pope you would go personally and explain to them how how powerful instagram was as a visual platform and and how you could use it to spread your message. 
Yeah, and what what I think was so so interesting was so Charles Porch, the guy you mentioned, he's still at Instagram now, and kind of the I guess the VP of their celebrity relations or whatever his title is. You need help through. You have to get the fashion people. That's the end of winters, and the fashion people. I think they said would get. Correct me if I'm wrong in the in the way. The fashion people will get the the actresses and the actors. The actors and the actresses will get the the musicians. The musicians will get the sports stars. Like, like all starts like that way. Yeah, it, 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 I can't remember if if the the actors or the music people were first, but certainly like that it was that was a plan it was it was part of a path to to greatness for instagram to start in these really influential communities and and build out and i think that that really worked for them no i I think it definitely did that and meanwhile meanwhile you know besides that they were building tools like instagram explore which started with human creation and the actual at instagram account which to this day has more followers than any kardashian or soccer star or or you know actor the at instagram account regularly shares folks to an audience of hundreds of millions of followers and the instagram explore page which used to be human curated started us on instagram trends that that maybe were a little bit more obscure like like asmr and slime and and things like that 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 they knew were going to be really popular on the internet but they sort of shaped it that way one of my favorite stories is about this this dog tuna that was shared on the at instagram account back when when it was just a few thousand followers and overnight that following doubled and doubled again and doubled again and the the mom or the owner of this dog basically had to quit her day job to be its manager and that's still how she makes all her money is tuna still alive tuna is still alive What, what happens when tuna is no longer alive well, she has a baby now. Babies are great content. <laughs> there you go. There's always there was there's always the next one. Because one of the things that, that I thought was interesting, and I'm gonna you kind of mentioned it there, where celebrities thought it might like cheapen cheapen them, but Chris Jenner kind of saw that you know you post anything and people will buy it. You're right here. You know, eventually celebrities would learn to make money off their Instagram accounts, but the idea sounded tacky at the time. I think this was kind of 2013, 2014 when when you're talking about that. So the question I have. Does the concept of selling out exist anymore? We're all becoming curators of of a brand image now. I mean, it's it's really just part of living on the internet on Instagram. You go about your day. I guess this is more appropriate for pre-COVID, right? But you go to yeah. a restaurant, you go, you go to an event, you go on a vacation, and you would think. During your your planning phases of every moment, would this make a good photo? Would that make a good photo? Would this make a good photo? Because Instagram is the first product that was truly created to be brought around our our everyday lives. Something that that ended up having so much power because of its lightweight nature. Like you didn't have to hang out on Instagram. Yeah. You could hang out with your friends. And post while you were out. And and then, you know, it started to become, because we got those metrics, because we learned about you know, what would get us followers, what would get us comments, what would get us likes, then it stopped being as real time. It stopped being yeah. as much about show what you're seeing when you're out there. And it started being about, okay, I took these 400 pictures today. What is the one yeah. that, that should go in my profile? It was really interesting to hear from Instagram how that ended up being a big concern for them. The the polish, the perfection, something that Instagram had actually infused into our culture by by requiring it of their users and, and you know promoting content that was extremely perfect and well 
designed, created too much pressure. And that anxiety, that pressure was bad for growth. Again, growth is like the thing that Facebook is, is innovative at. So they had to introduce Instagram stories to lower the bar of what was Instagrammable. Yeah, no, for sure. And so talking about that, you know, you talked about they, they created this ecosystem, I guess, of of where, you know, it was a place to put beautiful things. And I think Kevin Systrom, uh, the the founder, the the CEO, even even kind of says that. And, and that seems or comes across that is very kind of in line with his personality. He seems like a particularly meticulous kind of person where he can't just be like, oh, I kind of like wine. He becomes a sommelier. He can't just be like, I might like to take up cycling. He's like, He's like the ultimate self-improver. Yeah. So like, I, I wonder if, and obviously we, the, the book really interesting gets into the the tension between him and Mark Zuckerberg as as Instagram grew and, and kind of as the relationship wore on. But I wonder if from speaking to him, or if you're allowed to say, he, you know, he's obviously that very meticulous guy, self-improver, the guy who wants to see everything through, whether there was any hint kind of at the beginning of, a cla- like he would clash or worries from him that he would clash with his culture of kind of move fast and break things. Yes, I do think that there were there were very early signs that there was going to be a culture clash. But I think that Kevin Systrom and, and Mike Krieger thought that what they had earned through the success of Instagram was independence within Facebook, that they would be allowed to continue to be visionaries. And it was kind of a miscalculation on on Kevin's part, if I'm honest, because he thought that, you know, if, if he grows Instagram quickly, and if he manages to do things that, that crush the competition, the two things that Zuckerberg seems to care incredibly much about, that he would be rewarded with, you know, not just a good performance review, but maybe more independence and more resources that maybe Facebook would give him more headcount, more engineers to keep on this path that was working. And the opposite happens. Instead of, of passing along more resources to Instagram, Zuckerberg actually restricted them. He was threatened, not excited by Instagram's rise. And he, he was worried that over time, the Instagram product would cannibalize the potential success of his baby, the Facebook product. Yeah. And this is, that's really interesting because I'm, I'm going to read a passage here because so this was kind of after a relatively acrimonious meeting between uh, Mark and, and Kevin. I'm just going to read this straight from the book. Others in the room for those discussions were puzzled. Has Mark forgotten he owns Instagram? Zuckerberg has always preached the idea that Facebook should reinvent itself before a competitor got the chance and that the company should make the decisions about how to do so based on data. If we don't create the thing that kills Facebook, someone else will. The book that passed out at employees' orient- orientation says. So it's, it, it came across as very weird. Like this, this thing that he was obviously very aware of. He's not a, you know, Zuckerberg is obviously not a dumb guy and he knows the history of tech and he knows the history of particular kind of like social apps. And it seems like he got just a little bit jealous of Instagram's success and maybe the, the, the culture that had grown up around Instagram compared to Facebook. And at the time, it was a hard moment for Facebook. I might say that that moment has continued where people were very much critiquing them and, and saying that Facebook was, was the one stealing their data. Facebook was the one influencing elections. Facebook was the one you know responsible for violent life suicides, like all sorts of bad things yeah. were Facebook's fault suddenly. And, and I think Zuckerberg saw them as, 
just a reflection of the size of Facebook and the fact that it hosted a majority of the internet connected population on the world. And if you're a reflection of humanity, you're going to have some bad stuff. And that's just that's just how how it goes. And why why does Facebook get all this blame for all this stuff? And why do people like Instagram? They have just as much bad stuff. So so I think that he thought there was some unfairness there. But of course, if you read the book, you will understand that Facebook is is far from a neutral platform just watching these people do bad things and, and saying, oh no, they are they are creating algorithms, recommendations, virality that amplifies a lot of the the bad parts of humanity. That's a that's a different discussion though. Yeah. I mean that's I, I guess that kind of goes back to to what we discussed at the beginning, which was like Facebook cares that you spend more time on the app. They care that you're engaged and therefore they will feed you things which engage you whether they're good or bad or ugly. Yeah, personalization is is really key to keeping you on the platform. And one thing that's happened to Instagram and in recent years or months is is that Instagram has become a place for that Facebook-esque personalization. Instead of being a place like it was in the early days where you could go to be surprised or delighted by something that you may not have ever thought to get into, exposed to a new thing, a new artist, someone in a different country. Now it's a place where like, if you're into skateboarding videos, you're going to get more skateboarding videos. Yeah. If you're into, you know, certain kinds of CrossFit workouts, you're going to get those videos. So I think that that the the Facebook machine is one that brings us deeper into the interest we already have in the name of getting us to spend more time because that's a tried and true way. Yeah. And you talk in the book a little bit about the pressure that was put on Kevin and Mikey to introduce a regram button, which is like, I guess, the Instagram equivalent of like a retweet and helps growth and virality and et cetera. And they resisted every single time. So if Instagram now introduces a regram button, would, would that for you signify the full Facebookization of, of Instagram? So I think that that now without regram button on the main feed, they've still managed to fit sharing into Instagram and they've done it in stories. So if you notice and you look at people's stories, you can easily share other people's Instagram posts. That is one way for Instagram to have virality. But I, I think I think the lack of the regram button, they understand that that's a fundamental differenti- differentiating factor of Instagram because the fact that you can't reshare other people's content on Instagram makes Instagram the perfect personal branding tool because everything that you have put on your profile is something that you have created. So it's really a reflection of of, of yourself or at least a reflection of how you want to be seen, yeah. probably more, more the latter. And that has allowed it to become this this place for for commercialization in a way that that Facebook never quite got. And one way that that's now going to be exploited by by Instagram and, and by Facebook through extension is by turning it into a shopping platform. And, and that's really the big step for Instagram for the future. Is it's going to be a place where you shop. It is it is the constant struggle between art and the commercialization of that art. Yeah. It's remarkable that it's taken them this long to add kind of like the shopping function. So back in 2015, 2016, I worked at a, a startup called Teespring, which is an e-commerce startup. And so they, you know, and they had an exclusive merchandising opportunity with Twitch. And the amount of money, like 
the insane and I, I i watched 15 minutes of one twitch guy once and that was enough for me for the rest of my life so it's not you know it's not particularly anyway but the amount of money that these guys can make off of t-shirts and hoodies in the span of a few hours you're talking like multiple six figures you know i can't believe it's taken this long to create with, with the with the income potential to create like that shopping through the for the influencers uh, on instagram yeah no, it is a very natural fit. The problem is if you do that, do you change the vibe of the entire thing? Yeah. And it, it becomes less of a place to share the beauty you see in the world and it becomes more of a place to turn it, turn yourself into a product, right? And and you're right that that was a natural evolution, that people were becoming brands, brands were starting to tell their story through Instagram. And so they're selling things anyway. Why not, why not you know, formalize it? But then there is a tipping point. These these companies are very aware that if you have too many ads in somebody's feed, then they're gonna they're not gonna come back. They're gonna feel like they're always shopping when they're there, and it changes the nature of the product. It's not a place for them to share content from their lives that is not commercial. So you have to be careful about that that balance. But but when I've talked with Instagram execs, I say, well, people want to shop. Like yeah. Give them the thing to do that they want to do. Again, personalization is the key. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that is, I guess, probably more existential than any question I've I've, I've asked you before. But I'm going to try and phrase it in the best way possible. But if people are, you know, if restaurants and shops and places are just becoming Instagram destinations, it doesn't matter what the food tastes like as long as it looks good. And it doesn't matter what the background is as long as it looks good. And it's, you know, for the gram. And there's these places in LA you mentioned that are like popping up popping up where people can pretend they're on private jets or you know anything else and every and people are you know filtering not just filtering but you know using like photoshop and that like does reality like even exist anymore or is it just what people try like try to show or is it like they they realize that they have these actual lives and they're just showing the best things of it or is it the everything leads up to showing this best thing and therefore that is the thing i like I, I i can't really kind of get out exactly what i'm trying to say but like it feels like there's like this merging of a fake world and a real world to the point where reality what it used to be might not even kind of like exist anymore for the people who, who are super serious about it well i think that that what we have is a culture of hustle right we have a, a culture of a constant curation of your life and I, I don't really knock the folks that are doing that because, you know, got to make money, right? Got to have a yeah. business. Like that's the way to do it. But but I do worry about the people who go and compare themselves to to others. I mean, Instagram is the ultimate personal benchmarking tool. You can say, yeah. I have X many followers. My friend has this many followers. Why don't I have as much followers as they do? Why is my content not getting as many likes as they do? And with every post that we create, we get feedback. And yeah. it's like it's like you're a PM at Facebook. It's like you're getting these metrics every time you use the product about, you know, this kind of photo, a selfie photo is going to get you more likes than a then a photo of a landscape, a, a photo where you talk about your emotions is going to get more comments than a, a photo that doesn't have a caption. Like you learn these little things that are almost subconscious yeah. and you almost can't help from becoming a content creator, not in the professional sense, but in a, in a sense that just like, this is how you act in the world today is you, you 
write things in the way you know people want to see them. I think it's it's one of the things that is like for me the strangest thing about human behavior because I so I am I really enjoy the book. I'm an audience for books about particularly startups and business, but I am not an audience for social media because I I'm only on Twitter really. I don't have like Instagram and it baffles me that people care about like likes and comments and they, I guess like, if you're like 16, totally understand it. 100% understand it. But people who are like 30 with careers and families and they're like, and you mentioned this bit, the story of, you know, people who are like, you know, taking their kids to Disneyland for the birthday party. And are we doing it for the kids? Or are we really doing it for the parents to kind of share on social media? And I just, that boggles my mind that people would care that much about how things look rather than the actual experience of them. Right. Well, people have always been pretending, right? It's like, yeah. it's like every TV show in the 1950s. You have to make sure that everything is is clean and pristine when the guests come over and and instagram is like always having the guests over in your life and always putting on a a happy face and and that's absolutely exhausting yeah i can imagine i'm lucky that i i just don't care that much which is why i've not had a haircut in four months and i only wear like black t-shirts and for a year and a bit now i've only ever worn tracks at bottoms not worn jeans in quite a long time and i don't think i'm ever going to go back (laughs) (laughs) i love it i've got one last question to ask you before we kind of go into like the lightning round because i think i've only got you for another seven minutes or so i want to get let you get back to the day so you talk you 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 talk kind of at length in the book about instagram versus snapchat instagram was kind of this curated perfected version of yourself snapchat was more about where you could kind of be your real self and you know, when Snapchat came out with stories, that's why Instagram came out with with their stories. So I wonder, and one of the things that I've noticed is obviously the rise of TikTok. And TikTok seems to me at least to be a place that is a little bit more allowing of this self-deprecating humor that Snapchat might be akin to. So do you see them as more of a challenger for Snapchat or more of a challenger for Instagram, or they're just another avenue for people's attention and therefore they are a challenger for everybody in social media? I think the latter, because... You know, if you are trying to to build in this market, you are looking for people's time. And that's the yeah. most important thing. And and I think TikTok really caught on during the pandemic because a lot of the videos are, are fun and distracting. And you don't actually have to create. You can just sit back and watch. I think Instagram and Snapchat are both more places where you're encouraged to create, which is just effort. And if you don't have anything interesting happening, what's the point? Yeah. And so I, I think, yeah, I think TikTok is is it's a competitive to all of them, to YouTube, to Facebook, and then to Instagram and Snapchat. But it also has a unique culture that I think is difficult for Instagram and Snapchat to replicate, try though they might. Like Instagram has reels, which I think people are only using because if you are an influencer or celebrity, Instagram has advised you that using reels will boost your placement in their algorithm, which is, you know, key. And and Snapchat has introduced Spotlight, which is a way for anybody to create videos that if they go, if they are shared even through a non, like they don't want to have this whole influencer world, but if your video is funny and it gets a lot of views, even with your name not on it, you can win prizes. So that's kind of their way of going at the TikTok trend. I think it's, I think once you've created a culture around something, it's, it's difficult to replicate it elsewhere. And somehow Instagram was able to do it with stories, but I think that the, the other attempts have not been as natural. Partly that's because when, like I mentioned earlier, when Instagram was copying stories, they were also solving a problem that they had with their users. 
And when Instagram was copying TikTok, making reels, they weren't solving a problem that users had since problem of TikTok's rise. And that gives you a little bit of an idea of the difference between how Instagram thinks and how Facebook thinks, or now how, you know, Instagram as owned by Facebook and controlled by them is going to think. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to ask you now four lightning round questions and then I will, I will let you go and probably do tons more interviews and, and whatever else you, you have lined up. Okay. So podcasts and things always end with, you know, a recommendation, book, TV, movie, whatever it happens to be. I am not interested in that. I am interested in your anti-recommendation. I want a thing that people should avoid, be it a book, TV show, whatever, because it is not worth their time. Oh my goodness. I mean, I I think that it's probably, this might be controversial to say, but I don't think that it's worth your time to try to become a clubhouse influencer. Because because right now, there are so many people hustling on clubhouse, trying to be one of those early adopters that get, I don't know if this has hit internationally yet, but at least in Silicon Valley, there are a ton of people who are like trying to be the, the man on or the woman on clubhouse. Yeah. And, and I just worry that post-pandemic, none of us are going to want to like listen to audio for hours and, and just like, we're just going to want to see people. We're going to want to have dinner party. Clubhouse is like a dinner party, but on the internet. And, and I just don't know that it'll really survive this shift to normal life. It's interesting. So I've, I've used Clubhouse a little bit and. I do think it's great for the current moment. I I think, I think it, I think the thing, and is obviously they have, you know, to kind of go back to the Instagram story, they put curbs in place on what you could do because they wanted to f- like a forcing function basically for the for the users. And Clubhouse does the same by not allowing kind of, or at least not yet, you know, recorded audio. Everything is live, and that just means that you're 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 going to miss out on interesting. If it's a podcast, I can listen whenever I want. I can listen whenever I have time. I can listen on my commute. Whereas Clubhouse lives, we need to be there in the moment. And if you miss half a conversation, you know, obviously because Anderson Horowitz is a big investor in Clubhouse, they they put a lot of time and effort get people on there getting really interesting guests they had elon musk i think they had mark zuckerberg or maybe it was a different show but that's you know 6 a.m uk time and i can't then listen to it afterwards because it'd be super interesting to me and i'm a good audience and there's a global audience for it but it's like they need to figure out if they want to how to kind of get that out yeah i'm not counting them out i'm just saying that the amount of time people are spending trying to become major influencers i, I worry about that time okay. spent. All right, good. No, I like it. Next one is you've done probably a million of these interviews, podcasts, you know, sit down newspaper interviews, whatever it is. Is there a question that you either wanted to be asked or expected to be asked but haven't been asked? Oh wow. I mean I think that I think that one of the questions that I get at, this is probably not what you're asking, but one of the questions that I get asked a lot that that I dislike is so how do I win at Instagram? Okay. Like, how do I become famous? And I think a lot of people, when they say, oh, you wrote a book about Instagram, you've got the secrets, like, you know, and I think what my book does is it's, it's not a marketing guru book. It's not a, no. you read it. It's, it's yeah. not one of those kinds of things. And so, so when people are like, but how do I become famous? Like in, in one sense, it, it really underscores the importance of, of the story because the story is, is teaching you that there is no, it's not a meritocracy, that there's a lot of fakery, there's a lot of chance involved. And the the relationship that you have with the platform might change as you learn about how it works on the inside. So so that, that's one that I, that I get a lot. Another one is like, what does Zuckerberg think about your book? And oh man, he has, he has not told me. 
Oh, I can't help you there. He's not just dropped you an email and given you like the big blue thumbs up. It's like, I like the book. Oh, no, no. In fact, he just he just turned down another interview for the paperback in the US. So um, not interested. He's not interested. No. In part of the story officially. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's not technically the question that I asked, but I will allow it as, as an answer. Second last question. Is there something of, you know, relative importance on which you have changed your mind recently? Oh, I think I think I. So one of the things that I sort of was told through the writing of this book was that there's kind of a sliding scale. If you're an influencer, if you have 100,000 followers, you can charge X for a post. If you have 200,000 followers, you can charge Y. You can charge less for stories, but maybe charge more of them. And that, you know, although the industry is kind of untransparent, that's pretty standard. So recently, I have been digging into the fact that if you are a minority, Black people of color, you cannot get those rates. Okay. And, and it's very difficult to, again, like I was saying before, it's, it's not a meritocracy. It's, it's not a place where just anyone can, if you have enough followers, you can, you can succeed. And I talked with dozens of Black influencers, people who have millions of followers, not just on Instagram, but TikTok and YouTube. And they're, the numbers that they get offered for doing posts are fractions of what their white counterparts are offered. And that was that was really eye-opening to me. And and I think that that it, it kind of changed my mind about this this industry in general. Like it's not it's not just about like I I thought like it's all about the data. Like if you look at, you know, follower count, engagement rate, you can get a good sense for how it works. And and it's really not, it's also about personal preference. Yeah. That's super interesting. I think I saw when I was going through your Twitter feed, I think I saw an article you had posted about it, but I hadn't read the article yet. Yeah, it was pretty eye-opening for me to talk to those people and, and learn how difficult it's been for them. No, well, I can imagine because, you know, you look at, I guess you look at white influencers and they are, you know, giving away Teslas. Living living large, yeah. And, yeah. and I think that the, the, the promise of social media is that no matter who you are, you can yeah. build up a platform that you can make a living off of without going through the normal gatekeepers like that's what i wrote in my book like you don't have to have an agent you don't have to get booked at a comedy club you don't have to you know be signed to to anything you can just go out and do it and make the content and make it happen and and it's true that anyone can build a following but off that following through the traditional brand promotion channels it's it's a lot harder if you're not white gotcha okay last question so it has been awesome to talk to you about kind of your history and your writing and kind of what led you into i guess writing this book and also talk kind of a, a deeper dive into, into instagram and, and and that story who else would you like to hear on a podcast like this so i think that my my good friend alex davies just wrote a book about the birth of the electric car the book is called okay. driven and i think he has some some great stories to tell. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Sarah Fryer, the book is No Filter. It's the story of, of Instagram's rise. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care.